0: Hi, guys. Welcome back to True Crimes Untold. I'm your host, Jess. This next episode is on the kidnapping of Elizabeth Smart. bed in the middle of the night the only witness her terrified nine-year-old sister elizabeth if you're out there we're doing everything we possibly can to help you we love you we want you to come home safely to us thousands of volunteers help police in their frantic search days weeks months and finally a suspect Hello, 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 all of you beautiful people out there. How are you guys doing? Happy Sunday. I hope you're all well, happy, and healthy. Before we jump into this episode, I just have to tell you about this gem of an article that I found. This is the headline. Bodybuilder who married sex doll finds new love in ashtray. Yes, you heard that correctly. So Yuri Tolochko from Kazakhstan met, found, I don't know, I guess she wasn't just walking down the sidewalk and fell in love with this sex doll and he married her, but then he met and fell in love with an ashtray and not just like an ashtray that's sitting on your grandma's counter right now, like an ashtray that you would see outside of a restaurant or a movie theater, a big ashtray with one of those flip lids. So he wants to install a fake vagina in this ashtray and I guess do what he's going to do with it. But he doesn't want this ashtray just to be a stay-at-home wife. No, no. He wants it to get back out there, do its job, let people put cigarette butts in it, and then come home. Because this is what Yuri said. At first, I just arranged a photo shoot with it, but then it began to attract me. He just loved the touch of the metal on his skin and its brutal scent. Um, it's a little disturbing, yes. I just knew that you would appreciate this as much as I did, so I had to tell you. Now, after this episode... Google Yuri Tolochko from Kazakhstan and laugh at the picture that pops up just like I did because it's fucking hilarious. So, I mean, do whatever you want to do. Listen, I I guess it does sound like I'm judging you, but I'm really not. You want a fucking ashtray? I mean, go ahead. That's all I can say. Go ahead. All right. Let's get into the actual story for today. Um, I'm going to give a listener's discretion. This episode does contain rape, kidnapping, and it does involve children. So I understand if you don't want to hear things like that, I would just go ahead and skip past this one. When I say her name, You're going to immediately know who I'm talking about when this happened. It kind of felt like it hit home for the whole country. Like this could have been anybody's sister or cousin or family member. Uh, So, this story is on the kidnapping of Elizabeth Smart. It was around 2 a.m. on June 5th, 2002, in a quiet neighborhood in Salt Lake City, Utah called Federal Heights. Elizabeth Smart, who was 14 at the time, was lying in bed, asleep next to her younger sister, Mary Catherine, when she awoke to the sound of a man's voice. Elizabeth says in her autobiography that at first she thought it had to be part of a dream, but then she heard the voice again. She opened her eyes and saw a shadow of a man leaning right over her. The man quietly told Elizabeth, I have a knife at your neck, don't make a sound, get up and come with me. The stranger got Elizabeth up and out of bed. He took her into the closet so she could put on a pair of shoes. According to Mary Catherine, as she laid there awake and terrified, she could hear where they were at in the house because of a few squeaky floorboards. As the man walked Elizabeth down the hallway and then down the stairs, he told her that if she screamed, he would kill her and her whole family. Dad, please wake up. Mom, can you hear me? Please wake up and save me. Those were the prayers going through Elizabeth's mind. With the knife still pressed at her back, the man walked Elizabeth out of the back door and through her backyard. A couple hours later, just before 4 a.m., Mary Catherine worked up the courage to run into her parents' room to tell them about the stranger that took Elizabeth. Ed Smart is awakened from a dead sleep by his youngest daughter, and she's frantic. She's telling him that someone took Elizabeth and they had a gun. At first, Ed's confused. He believes that Mary Catherine must have had a bad dream and knew they were going to find Elizabeth somewhere in the house. Ed checks all through the home, but Elizabeth is nowhere to be found. At the same time, Lois Smart, Elizabeth's mother, notices something in the kitchen that makes her skin crawl. The kitchen window screen had been cut open, and the side door that is right off the kitchen is unlocked. Ed knows that he locked that door before he went to bed that night. The family immediately calls 911, then family and friends. They are calling anyone who they believe might be able to help find Elizabeth. Police arrive about 10 minutes after they get the call, and when they get there, the Smart's home is already filling up with people who are ready to help find Elizabeth. But there's one problem. The house is considered a crime scene, and with this many people inside, everyone could be disrupting evidence. In the book, In Plain Sight, which was written by Ed's brother, Tom Smart, he says the police don't start restricting access to the house until almost 7 a.m. By that time, three hours had passed and many people were already in and out of the home. Whether the crime scene is contaminated or not, police are able to piece together what they believe happened that night, and a lot of their theories are from the help of Mary Catherine. Sometime around 2 a.m., an intruder cut the screen on the kitchen window and crawled through a 10-inch opening, walked up to the second floor of the house, and into the girl's bedroom. He woke up Elizabeth and walked her out at gunpoint through that side door in the kitchen. Mary Catherine didn't get a great look at her sister's abductor, but she was able to tell police that it was a Caucasian man, he was around five 5'8", and she said that he was wearing light-colored clothes and a strange-looking hat, one that Mary Catherine could not describe. She also told police that this man's voice sounded familiar to her. She couldn't place it exactly, but she knew it was a voice that she had heard before. Police jumped on this right away. They already believed that the person was someone who knew the smarts. Someone who knew their home well enough to get in and move around easily without making much noise. And someone who knew how to get out of the house without tripping the alarm system. The smarts did tell police that they didn't set the alarm every night because it would go off often accidentally. But even if the alarm wasn't set that night, they still had alarm triggers on all the doors and they would beep when the doors would open. But the alarm wasn't working on that side door on that night. A magnet had slipped, which silenced the alarm. Police aren't sure if it's just a coincidence or if it was done intentionally. Now, what was just a coincidence was the unlocked kitchen window. The Smarts always locked all the doors and windows in the house, but they left that one window open because Lois accidentally burnt potatoes that she was cooking for dinner that night and tried to air out the smell. There were several exits out of the house, though, so police are wondering if the intruder used that side door, knowing that the alarm wouldn't be triggered. Police must, of course, look at all the possible options. Could the family be involved? Maybe they organized the kidnapping to get money somehow. Did Elizabeth run away? Did the family have any enemies? But Ed and Lois tell police no. They weren't having any money problems. They also told them that Elizabeth had no reason to run away. Everything was fine at home and at school with her friends and they didn't know of a single person who would want to hurt them or Elizabeth. Police also believe that whoever took Elizabeth took her on foot and likely walked into the mountains right behind their house. So that's where the search would start, on the trails and forested mountains near the home. Not only was there a ground search being done by police and canine units, thousands and thousands of volunteers also offered to help look for Elizabeth. At this point in the investigation, everyone was a suspect, and what would be reported in the media at the time is that the window screen had been cut from the inside of the house, not the outside, but it wasn't true, at least not entirely true. Police say that yes, one section of the screen could have only been cut from the inside of the house, but the person doing the cutting didn't need to be in the house completely. They just needed to be able to stick their hand inside with the knife. Police are still not ready to roll out the family. They are questioning everyone who is close to Elizabeth and one by one rolling them out as suspects. Since they have such a large suspect pool, investigators work with the FBI to create a profile of their suspect to narrow their search. The FBI believes that this was a sex offense, the crime was premeditated, and the abductor would have taken Elizabeth to a predetermined place. They believe that their suspect would be keeping track of the case through the media and that he probably had previous sexual issues and may have been arrested before for sexual offenses. The profile that the FBI came up with does not match anyone in the Smart family or even anyone in their immediate circle of family or friends. So investigators decide it's time to look in another direction. The Smart house was relatively new, and there was a lot of work happening there to finish the house. During that time, at least 60 tradespeople, contractors, and handymen had been in and out of the house working on different projects. Some of these people may have only been working in the home for a few days or weeks, while others were there for months and even a year, which was more than enough time to get acquainted with the outside and inside of the house, and more importantly, long enough to get to know the family, including the kids. It doesn't take investigators long to narrow their list from 60 potential suspects down to just one name. That name was Richard Rizzi. Richard worked at the Smart House for eight months in the first half of 2001, up until almost exactly a year before Elizabeth disappeared. His name came up several times by several different people. Ed told police that he remembers him well, that he was a good worker and came recommended by a friend. Ed also made comments in an interview that Richard was incredibly friendly to the kids. But now the Smart family is finding out that when Richard was working at their house, he was out of prison on parole. Richard was in prison for attempted homicide and felony robbery. In 1983, Richard returned fire on a police officer while he was attempting to rob a pharmacy. And that was just one of his convictions. Richard had a very long rap sheet. He spent decades in and out of prison. He served 23 and a half years, plus the time he spent out on parole, which he would break every single time. Ed and Lois never knew Richard to be anything other than a nice and easygoing handyman. That was until they noticed a few things had gone missing from their house, including a $1,600 bracelet that belonged to Lois. Ed said he asked Richard about the bracelet, but he denied having anything to do with it. But Ed could not trust him anymore, so that was the end of their working relationship. In a 2003 documentary called The Kidnapping of Elizabeth Smart, reports say that the Smarts weren't the only family who had things go missing while Richard was working in their homes. The police believe he was casing the houses while he was at work during the day, and then he would break back in at night to steal the items he saw. The theory police were working with was that maybe Richard wasn't there initially to kidnap Elizabeth, but to break in and rob the smarts, but Elizabeth caught him, and she would have recognized him because he had been working at their house for months. Richard was warned already by the parole board that one more violation would send him back to prison for life. Instead of risking going back to prison, police think Richard kidnapped Elizabeth to keep her from talking. On June 14th, nine days after Elizabeth was kidnapped, police arrest Richard, but not for kidnapping, for parole violation. They wanted to get him on anything so they could get him behind bars while they continued to look for physical evidence to connect him to Elizabeth's disappearance. They did have circumstantial evidence against him. He put over a thousand miles on his Jeep between May 28th and June 8th that he could not or would not account for. When police searched Richard's property, they found Lois's stolen bracelet In a strange beige golf hat that kind of matched the description that Mary Catherine said the kidnapper was wearing that night. While Richard was in custody, being questioned for hours and hours by the police, he continued to to deny having anything to do with Elizabeth's disappearance. He even had an alibi. Richard says he was at home with his wife all night, and she backs up his story, saying they were in bed together during the time Elizabeth was abducted. He even agrees to give DNA samples and take a polygraph, anything to clear his name. Police did collect some physical evidence from the smarts' home. They got a partial palm print on the window frame, a fingerprint on the door handle, and another partial fingerprint on the bedpost, all from the girl's bedroom. Police were able to determine that the fingerprint on the door handle matched the partial print on the bedpost, but they did not match Richard's prints. But police still weren't convinced that Richard didn't do it. The police stated that those prints could have been left by anybody who has ever been in the house. Police wanted to make Richard's time in prison intolerable, hoping that he would crack, He didn't get any visitation, no haircuts, no shaves, no hot water, or hot meals. He wasn't allowed any time outside in the yard, and he would spend 23 hours a day in a cell by himself. Every time he would be brought out of solitary confinement, he would be in shackles and wearing a hood. Even with all of this torment and basically torture, Richard does not crack and still pledges his innocence when it involves Elizabeth. But police don't necessarily need a confession because while Richard was in prison, there was a grand jury convening in Salt Lake City to look at Richard's potential involvement in Elizabeth's disappearance. The Smart family isn't really agreeing with police, though, when it comes to Richard being their guy, especially Mary Catherine. Since she was the only one to see her sister's abductor, Mary Catherine was telling the police that Richard wasn't him. It wasn't his face or his voice. But police are wondering if maybe Mary Catherine was unsure because of how terrified she was that night. But again, whether she confirms Richard to be the guy or not police still believe he is. On the morning of July 24th, about two months into their investigation, Salt Lake City police get a call from a local sheriff's office. There had been another attempted kidnapping, and it was eerily like what happened to Elizabeth. There was a cut screen. It was another little girl, and this girl was Elizabeth's cousin. Early that morning around 3 a.m., Elizabeth's 19-year-old cousin Jessica woke up to the sound of a picture falling off the dresser right under her bedroom window. When she looked, she saw someone trying to cut through the window screen and she screamed. Her dad came running to her and the person that was trying to get in ran away. Now the family doesn't believe that Jessica was the intruder's target because she had just started sleeping in that room. Tom Smart said in his book that room belonged to Jessica's sister, Olivia, who was also 14, up until recently when the two decided to switch. Olivia and her cousin Elizabeth were very close. They were best friends at the time of the kidnapping. The family believes that the real kidnapper was still out there and was targeting other members of their family. But the police didn't believe that to be true, that it was more than likely just a copycat crime. Then, on August 27th, investigators got bad news. Earlier that day, after a court appearance, their suspect collapsed in his jail cell and was rushed, rushed to the hospital to have surgery to relieve pressure and bleeding in his brain. After three days, doctors told Richard's wife and stepson and the police who were at the hospital that he wasn't going to wake up. Richard died in the hospital on August 30th. Police are wondering if they will ever know what happened to Elizabeth, since their only suspect, their whole case, died with Richard. But for the smarts and a few of the investigators who never fully believed it to be Richard— This was a chance to shift the focus of the investigation onto other potential suspects. Tips that came in early in the investigation about other potential suspects didn't lead police anywhere. They would track these people down and then rule them out. Despite a $250,000 reward relating to Elizabeth's safe return, no one was coming forward. As summer turns to fall, the family must face the fact that they may never see or know what happened to Elizabeth ever again. Four months after Elizabeth disappeared, on October 12th, Mary Catherine walked into her parents' bedroom one evening and told them, I know who took Elizabeth. She tells her parents that it was Emmanuel. And at first, Ed and Lois are wondering who Emmanuel is. Then they started to remember a man who they ran into on the street one day. He told Lois that he had lost his job and that he was looking for work. So Lois offered him a job, told him to call Ed, and then gave him a few dollars. Emmanuel did call Ed about coming to work at their house, and he did come to work there. Emmanuel had only worked there for a few hours on one day, a year before Elizabeth was taken. He did some yard work, and he was supposed to come back the next day, but he never showed up, so the family never thought about it again until Mary Catherine brought him up. She was sitting, reading a book, and suddenly, the voice matched a face in her head, and she remembered Emmanuel, the homeless preacher they met on the street. Ed and Lois went to the police with, the, with this information, but they didn't think Emmanuel was a strong suspect. He was homeless, so where would he be keeping Elizabeth? It had been so long ago and for such a short time that he was even at the smart home, and police are wondering what his motive would even be. There was no ransom, so it wasn't over money. Police assigned an officer to try and track him down, but they don't even believe that Emanuel is probably his real name or if he even has a recent address. And police don't want to put out a sketch of Emmanuel. They are worried that if he sees it and knows they are looking for him, it will drive him further underground. Tom Smart says in his book that most of the investigators on the case felt that they already had their man, Richard, and releasing information on Emmanuel could jeopardize the case they were still working on with Richard, even though he had passed away. So the Smart's wait month after month. Elizabeth's 15th birthday passes and still no movement on the case. On February 3, 2003, eight months after Elizabeth was kidnapped from her home, the Smarts d- decide to release the sketch of Emmanuel themselves. They tell reporters what Emmanuel looked like and what he wore, how he talked about the Bible while he worked and he was a street preacher and he told them that he traveled around a lot. The local Salt Lake City News covered the story, but the news didn't make it out of Utah. But two weeks later, Elizabeth's case was ran on America's Most Wanted, and it included a manual sketch. The sketch went out across the country. Immediately, a woman named Lisa called in on the hotline, and she told them that the man in the picture had to be her brother, Brian David Mitchell. When police search for Brian David Mitchell, they find that he had been arrested two different times since Elizabeth had been missing. One time for shoplifting in Salt Lake, and the other for breaking into a church in California. In the police file is a picture of Brian David Mitchell, and it looks nothing like the sketch that was put out on America's Most Wanted. In his mugshot, he has a thick beard with long hair long baggy clothes, and he's wearing a strange looking hat, just like the one Mary Catherine saw that night. Police learned that everyone in Salt Lake City knew this guy. He was always downtown preaching for money, and the last few times he was seen, he had two women with him. Both women had coverings over their faces and bodies, and they never spoke. He would introduce one as his wife and the other as his daughter. At this point, though, no one had seen Brian and the two women for months. Police got another call after the America's Most Wanted episode aired. It was from a woman named Debbie. Debbie was Brian Mitchell's second wife. She hadn't seen him in almost 18 years, but she described him as a, as a guy who terrorized her during their marriage and sexually abused her children as well. Based on Brian's history, he is much closer to the FBI profile than Richard ever was. Debbie tells the police one more thing about Brian. She tells him that he is a molester, but he is not a murderer, and if he did take Elizabeth, she is more than likely still alive. On March 12, 2003, two calls come into 911 at the same time. Both callers tell police that they see Emmanuel and Elizabeth is with him. Emmanuel and the two women are just walking down the side of the road, but this time they are in jeans and shirts, not robes. It only takes two minutes for an officer to arrive, and there were more coming right behind her. She asks this man, what's your name? He tells her his name is Peter Marshall and introduces his wife as Juliet and their daughter Augustine. The officer asks the man for ID, but he didn't have one. He tells her he doesn't need any worldly possessions, that they are messengers of God. The officer then asks the girl what her name is, and she tells her that, that she is his daughter and her name is Augustine Marshall. But they aren't going anywhere until he can prove that he is Peter Marshall. The officers were able to separate the girl from the other two people and they asked her again, who are you? She told them she knew they thought she was the girl that went missing, but she said she wasn't. The officers could see how anxious this girl was and one officer that was there that day said he could see her heart pounding through her clothes. They ask her straight up if she's Elizabeth and remind her that if she is, that she is a family that has never given up looking for her and that they want her home. Finally, the girl responds, if thou say it. They put her in the back of a squad car and drive towards the nearest station. A call is made to Ed telling him to get there right away, even though he isn't told why. When Ed and Lois get to the station, they are finally reunited with their daughter and find out what really happened to her. The story Elizabeth tells police is truly terrifying. She tells them that it was a normal night until she was awoken to a man in her bedroom. She said she could feel the sharp knife across her neck and the hand trying to pull her out of bed. He took her out of her house and through the backyard and into an abandoned lot. As headlights drove by, he pushed her down behind some bushes. As the car passed, Elizabeth said she remembered seeing the word police written across the car. For a moment, she thought she was saved, but that quickly changed as the officer kept driving, not even seeing Brian and Elizabeth. He had her up and running, and as soon as they rounded the corner, he forced her towards the trails and mountains behind her home. Elizabeth said in her autobiography that she didn't realize how far they had gone because she had so much adrenaline and fear that time seemed to stop, but the sky was getting lighter and the sun was starting to come up as they got to the top of the mountain. Brian then told Elizabeth that his wife was waiting for them at the bottom on the other side. Elizabeth said for a second she was relieved. She thought that maybe they couldn't have a child or maybe their child passed away and that they didn't want to hurt her. She could see in the middle of the trees, there was a tent set up, there were tarps on the ground, and a woman walked out. Elizabeth said she was dressed different and looked different from anyone she had ever seen before. The woman walked up to Elizabeth and hugged her and took her into the tent. She had Elizabeth undress and sponge bathed her. The woman's name was Wanda Barzee. Elizabeth said it was clear to her that this had nothing to do with comfort and everything to do with control, and Wanda was not going to be any type of a mother figure or ally. That first morning, Brian performed what he called a sealing ceremony. He told Elizabeth that they were now married, man and wife. Elizabeth tried to tell him every reason why this was not okay and not legal, but Brian did not care. He told her it was time to consummate their marriage. Elizabeth said she knew that meant that he was going to rape her, and she felt hopeless. She didn't know how she would stop him from doing it. He was a man, bigger and stronger, and she couldn't fight him off. She felt like she could not protect herself. Elizabeth grew up in a very Christian and conservative community. She thought that if her parents knew what had happened to her, that they wouldn't want her as a daughter anymore. Elizabeth would just shut down and do what her captors told her to do. She didn't want them to hurt her more than they already have or even kill her. For the first few months, Brian and Wanda chained Elizabeth to a tree to keep her from escaping. They needed, needed to physically keep her in one place while they would psychologically abuse her they took everything that Elizabeth knew away from her. She said on one hand, she would want to scream out and say, I'm here, come rescue me. But at the same time, she was dealing with the fear that if she tried to escape or run, they would find her or kill her or one of her family members. Elizabeth said at one point she remembered hearing a search party screaming her name. Brian held on to her with his knife in his hand and told her that if she screamed, that he will kill anyone who walks into their camp and it would be her fault. And she knew this man was capable of evil things and he would do whatever he had to. Brian and Wanda were always threatening Elizabeth that if she didn't do what they told her to, that they would kill her or they would go back and kill her family. Elizabeth's captures would use God as a reason that they were able to get away with the things that they got away with. Brian started to make plans for the three to leave Utah and head to Southern California after a couple close calls with the police. Once they got to San Diego, Brian found a dried riverbed and hid Elizabeth there. She was only ever allowed out about once every week and she was never left alone. While in California, Brian and Wanda attempted to kidnap another young girl, but was unsuccessful. They believed that California wasn't where they needed to be to kidnap another girl, that maybe they should try somewhere else. During the trial in 2010, Wanda said they received a commandment from God to find and kidnap girls from the ages of 10 to 14, and police found out that it was Brian Mitchell that attempted to break into Elizabeth's cousin house to kidnap her as well. And they weren't the only two. There had been many girls that were stalked and followed before and after Elizabeth was taken. At first, Brian thought they should go to a big city like New York or Boston. Elizabeth was so afraid to go that far from home, knowing that no one may recognize her there. She knew her best chance to get rescued was to manipulate her captures into going back to Utah. She told them she had a feeling that they were supposed to return to Salt Lake City and asked Brian if he would please ask God if that's what they were supposed to do since he was his prophet, and he agreed. They hitchhiked from Southern California back to Utah. At this point, police knew they were looking for Brian David Mitchell, and they knew what he looked like. By March 12, 2003, Elizabeth had been gone for nine months, and her family knew there was a small chance that she was still alive. The U.S. Department statistics say that if a child will be murdered by their kidnappers, that 74% will be killed in the first three hours. Elizabeth said when she got home that she needed to heal. She knew that she would never be that girl again that she was before she was kidnapped. She had to make peace with what happened. When she got back, people asked her all the time why she didn't run or escape. And when she said she and she said she could spend the rest of her life picking apart everything that happened. What if she would have screamed when he tried to take her from the house? What if her and her dad would have checked all the windows together that night to make sure they were all locked? Elizabeth said she could spend the rest of her life wondering these things, that it would probably be pretty easy to live that way, but she wants to move on with her life. It took seven years for Elizabeth's case to go to trial. When it did, it was her testimony of what she had been through for nine months as a prisoner that sealed the fate of Brian Mitchell and Wanda Barzee. In 2009, Wanda pled guilty to kidnapping and unlawful kidnapping of a minor, and she was sentenced to 15 years in prison, minus the time she had already served. Part of her deal was her testimony against her husband, who is serving a life sentence behind bars. Wanda was released from prison on September 19, 2018. Elizabeth felt it was like a slap on the wrist for Wanda. She felt like Wanda was just as, as involved as Brian. She helped keep Elizabeth chained up. She let Brian rape her and never said a word or protected her from him. But unfortunately, there was no other legal action that Elizabeth could take to try and keep one of her captures behind bars. Elizabeth took all of these horrible and traumatic things that she went through and turned it into something amazing. She is a big voice for survivors of sexual violence, and through the Elizabeth Smart Foundation, her and her team do amazing work to help prevent sexual exploitation and to help survivors. Her campaign is to try and educate the public on what it's like to be a survivor and how we can become a better community and to listen and believe someone if they tell you they've been raped or sexually assaulted. How we can rise above victim blaming and victim shaming and learn how to offer support to those who need it. They also show women how to protect themselves with smart defense, the knowledge and physical training to know when it's okay to fight back. According to Rain, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, one in six women will be a victim of rape or an attempted rape in their lifetime. Every 73 seconds, someone is sexually assaulted in this country. If you want to know more, you can check out the Elizabeth Smart Foundation. You can read other people's stories or learn about smart defense, get involved with your community, or just to realize that you're not Alone. It's honestly terrifying to think that every 73 seconds somebody could be being raped or attempted to be raped, and that women feel like they need to live in fear. But it's somebody like Elizabeth Smart who's trying to show us no, you don't need to live in fear. Yes, you need to be cautious of your surroundings. You know, um, carry maybe pepper spray, um, your conceal permit, learn self-defense, smart defense. We need to live with knowing that we can protect ourselves if we become in a situation like this and just know that you're not alone. You might even know somebody who has been raped or was attempted to be raped or maybe you don't because they've never told you, but more than likely, we all do. Or maybe it's you yourself. And it's okay that if you've never wanted to talk about it, that's your choice. But know that you can, that there are people out there who do believe you, who will not victim shame you. Sorry. <laughs> it's just sad. And it's it's just, it's messed up that we have to live in a world like this. So just stay safe and know that there's people like me, people like me everywhere who are there for you, even as a complete stranger. So Alrighty. Well, thank you guys for listening to this week's episode. You can of course find me on Facebook and Instagram at True Crimes Untold Podcast. I'm on Spotify. Hit the subscribe button and you will get notifications for new episodes. And I will see you guys in a couple weekends. Bye.